Due to the subject matter of today's sermon regarding suicide, parental discretion is advised. Well, as you noticed on the title of the PowerPoint this morning, today we're going to be speaking about the issue of suicide. You may be asking, uh, why are you speaking about that? Well, you remember before Thanksgiving that we were doing a sermon series titled Sermons from the Summer, and these were sermons that arose out of things I observed, I read, or comments we had around the fireplace and discussions we entered into while I was on holidays. And so we've talked about things like tattoos, we've talked about things like uh, clothing, all stemming from summer. But today we're going to talk about suicide. And really what happened was we were, Mark and I were sitting around the fire at Lake Kukanusa with his family, his grandchildren, his daughter, and my boys. And of course, with the age of uh, our children, plus the maturity of Mark and I, <laughs> there was a lot of joking going around and uh, not a lot of serious conversation. But once in a while, the, uh, the boys and the kids like, like, uh, would ask these incredibly deep questions. Like, you know, for example, like, who created God? You know, how can he just self-exist? Like, stuff that even adults, like, can't comprehend. But one of the boys, uh, actually it was Jace, he said to me, he just turned to us and said, Dad, what happens to people that commit suicide? What does God do with this? And I was like, oh, man. That is a really, really hard question. That's a super hard question, and one that's really tough to answer. And it's tough uh, for various reasons, um, but one of the reasons is, is that it's the emotional weight. The emotional weight the issue carries. Um, for those who have experienced this in your own life, um, you know what I'm talking about. There's a lot of pain to process, a lot of grief, there's a ton of confusion, and it's, it's a really difficult issue. I remember the first time um, this touched my life in a big way. I was 18 years old. I was attending Augustana University College in Camrose, Alberta. And in one of our classes, we were, we were given an assignment by our school teacher. And I don't even remember what the assignment was about, um, but, or even what course I was taking for that matter. But we're given an assignment, and the teacher assigned us randomly into groups. And the groups consisted somewhere in the neighborhood of four to five students per group. And each uh, date of our classes in the future, we're we were to present um, the topic that we're given to study. And so one of our groups, uh, actually my group, uh, we met off campus to prepare on the weekend for what we were going to uh, present to the class. It was either on a Monday or Tuesday, but it was a Sunday night. I remember that, and we were doing our last minute scrambles to get this thing done. Well, we had a guy in our class named Bob, and he was in my group. And so I remember two things about that night specifically. Number one, he kind of looked down, and when I asked him, like, what's wrong, Bob? He said, oh, my girlfriend that I've been dating for a long time just broke up with me today. And, uh, and so, yeah, like, I'm kind of, like, sort of working through that. So I remember him talking about the, the breakup of his girlfriend who he'd been with for a long time. But then, it was um, one other thing that happened over and over that night is that we barely actually finished our assignment. We barely got through it, and the reason was is that Bob and I couldn't stop laughing every time we went to videotape our, our, um, our session. And it was to the point where we were like laughing in tears and like gut aches, and, like we were just, and the group was getting mad at us. And they were mad at us because they were desperate to get home, and we couldn't finish the project because Bob and I couldn't get through it without cracking up. And so, yeah, that's kind of like where it ended. 
Bob and I making jokes, having a great time, and that was Sunday night. Uh, we show up to class, it was either Monday morning or, or Tuesday morning, I can't remember, and the teacher announced that uh, Bob had taken his life on the weekend. Obviously the night that we had finished the, the class, our assignment. Uh, she was gracious and gave us extended time to regroup and to um, have a future date to prepare because now we were one short in our presentation. That was an emotionally difficult time for me. I had never experienced someone that I knew personally uh, commit suicide. An acquaint you know, he was an acquaintance, uh, a classmate, and uh, I had uh, so many burning questions. And, and I worked through so many emotions, like, you know, like questions like this, like how didn't I see it coming? Why didn't I take more time to care? Could I have said anything different that night to prevent it? Could I have done anything different that night to prevent it? And I remember phoning my parents because that was the first time I'd experienced it and I was going through the phases of guilt, anger, remorse, and, and again, he was a acquaintance at best. When I say these questions, I'm sure many of you who have faced this issue go through, have gone through or maybe going through right now the same questions. And so you can relate to everything I'm saying. So please hear me in this when I say this, that I come in a total spirit of gentleness tonight or today and sympathy. I'm not coming here as an expert on the issue. I'm not here to create more anxiety, cause more pain. And I, uh, I feel we need to talk about it though, because if a nine-year-old kid is asking me about it, and that's going through his mind at nine years old, then surely as Christians and as adults, it's questions that we have to ask as well and answer. And if we haven't faced it already, which the majority of here I believe have, you're going to experience it at some point in your life in the future, I guarantee you. So let's look at it through a biblical lens the best we can to try to capture God's heart in this. So the sermon outline is in three points. Uh, what does the Bible say about suicide? Is it a sin? Is suicide forgivable? And what hope is there for those who are contemplating ending their life? So let's look at the first question. What does the Bible say about suicide? It's interesting, you know, uh, the scripture does make mention of various individuals who did take their own life. We have four definitive absolutes and three questionable depends on how you look at the story. The four absolutes um, are 1 Samuel 31, 5, Saul's armor bearer, he fell on his sword. Uh, 2 Samuel 17, 23, Ahithophel, a man who hanged himself. Uh, 1 Kings 16, 18, Zimri, king of Israel, a man who burned himself in, in a house. And of course, the famous Judas in Matthew 27, 5, who also hanged himself. The questionable ones come from other places. Abimelech, king of Israel, he was asked to be killed with a sword, but he was already dead pretty much anyway because he was wounded in battle. First Samuel 31.4, Saul, the king of Israel, who also 
fell on his own sword, but he was also basically on death's door. He was wounded in battle. And then people wonder about Samson and Judges with collapse in the temple. Um, I'm not going to get into these three in terms of uh, questions about this. We can discuss this uh, after church if you like. But again, there's four definitive and three and three questionable. But here's where it gets difficult regarding the issue. Although suicide um, is mentioned and recorded, there's no specific passage of scripture dedicated to the issue of it. I'll say that again. There's no specific passage of scripture dedicated specifically to the issue. You're not going to find the word suicide in the Bible. You're not going to see God's instruction regarding the issue of it. It doesn't exist. So it's very difficult because it's not like forgiveness. I can go to passages in the Bible and say forgiveness is here. Here's what it says. Uh, marriage. Here's what the Bible says about marriage. Uh, parenting. Uh, money. Uh, anger. Whatever. Like gossip. You can find passages that instruct you on how to deal with these issues. Suicide is different. It's different. There's no definitive clear answer as to what God thinks. So what we're left then with is to deduce our own answers from looking at the Bible as a whole. We have to take everything we know in Scripture, uh, the stories we know, the principles we know, looking at the character of God, and try to come up with a theological understanding of how he may think about the issue, and what he thinks about the issue. And so, if you study this issue on your own, you're going to notice this, that people's presupposed theology is going to dictate their answer. So if you listen to someone from this theological camp, they're going to say, this is what the Bible says. If you listen to someone over here, they're going to say, this is what the Bible says, and it's based off of their own theological understanding of the stories, principles, and character of God from the Scriptures. So what that does is leaves me in a pretty unique situation, an uncomfortable situation, and I'm in the same boat as everybody else. I have to come and talk to you about what I think the Bible says and speak for the heart of God based on what I understand from the stories, principles, and character of God from the Scriptures. So I'm just hoping that my understanding of the Scriptures from the way I've been teaching for 10 years resonates with your heart and you can understand why I come to the conclusions I do. But in the end, you may disagree. And I'm okay with that. So the second question then, is it a sin? Is it a sin? Well, like I just said for the last minute or so, nowhere does the Bible explicitly say it's a sin to commit suicide. So what are we left with then? The Bible does say this, that in Exodus 20, 13, you are not to commit murder. You shall not commit murder. That's one of the Ten Commandments, and it's one that's repeated in the New Testament. And suicide then would constitute as a self-murder. It's a self-murder. If you, you might want to ask them the question, well, why would this be such an offense to God? Well, as I look at the character of God in the Bible, we remember that he is the one who's considered over and over and over from the Genesis right to Revelation, the creator and giver of life. He is the creator and giver of life. Somehow, in the reuniting of a sperm and an embryo, like an egg, an egg, God puts a soul into that person. At the uniting of the sperm and the egg, a biological connection, God has to put a soul into that person. And so God is the creator and giver of life. 
We see this in Genesis 1.1. It says, in the beginning God created. Go to verse 26. He says, God created man in his image. In the end of the book, the end of the Bible, Revelation 4.11, we see this amazing throne room scene of worship. Everything in creation is worshiping God. And, he, and, the, and the people in the heavens are saying this, Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. Heaven is praising God for like being the giver of life and the sustainer of life. And so we see evidence in Scripture of God loving life. We see this in His commands not only to produce life, but to protect life. So let's look at the production of life. He says to Adam and Eve, right from the beginning of creation, be fruitful and multiply in Genesis. Opening chapters, Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. When the flood happened and Noah came out of the ark and, was, and there's only eight people left on the world, he said to Noah, be fruitful and multiply. Remember the issue in 1 Timothy chapter 2 about elders and women in the church. And I taught on this about three years ago. One of the reasons why he was frustrated with the girls in Ephesus was that they were refusing to accept their godly role to have family. They wanted to be the leaders in the church and they're forsaking their primary role to have children. And that's one of his issues in 1 Timothy chapter 2. So not only does God want the production of life as the creator of life, he wants to protect it. This is why in the Old Testament, over and over, we see the commands that life for life, life for life. If you were to take someone's life as an individual and have disregard for it, your life was to be taken. Heck, even if an animal gored you in the field, the animal is to be killed immediately for taking your life. I think that's also why around the sexual laws and relationships in the Old Testament, there was severe, uh, severe issues around this with God and commands to protect your life. Like sexual relationships are only to happen in committed marital unions to protect from disease, like disease, you'd never get disease if you went God's way in marriage. And you would never ever have a child born out of wedlock if you went in that way as well. And so God wants two children to be raised under two loving parents and a protected home. And so we see again, as God is the creator of life, the protector of life and the producer of life. So based on all this evidence then, on my theological understanding from the scriptures, I think it's fair to say that suicide would be considered a sin because it's to disregard the very life that God gave you and you're rejecting God's right or claim over you, over you as their, his, your creator. But the real big question that people actually care about most is, is it forgivable? Is it forgivable? Before I answer that question, I want to look at a main attribute, a key attribute of God in his character that is extremely important in answering this question. And the attribute is this. God has a track record of showing mercy to those he deems as lacking the capacity to fully reason. God has a track record of showing mercy to those he deems as lacking the capacity to fully reason. And we're going to look at three passages in particular because this is absolutely critical for me to this issue. 
So let's look at Mark 10. People were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. But the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. What's important about this passage is that he wasn't saying children are sinless. <laughs> children, Jesus wasn't claiming that children are sinless. He was saying, don't hinder them for coming to me because the kingdom of God belongs to them. How does a child come to Jesus? They come in humility on the provision of his grace. If you want to enter the kingdom, you enter the kingdom like a child, you come by God's grace. A child can't do anything to please God, to earn their favor, his favor. It's purely on his merit that they get into glory. And they're dependent on him because they can't reason. If God sent a child to hell, the child would have no understanding as to why they were there. Think about that. Three years old, and you're in hell, a child's going to go, I have no clue why I'm here. They can't reason. Jonah 4.11. Jonah's going through the land of Nineveh, which is in uh, modern-day Iraq, Mosul, the capital, I believe. He says, and should I not have concern? This is God answering Jonah, by the way, for Jonah's being mad at God because God didn't kill the Ninevites and slaughter them all. And God says to Jonah, and should I have not the concern for the great city of Nineveh in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left and also many animals? God is saying this, um, Jonah, like... Uh, I know you want me to smite the entire city here, but should I not care for those who cannot tell the light from the left? In other words, they can't reason. They can't reason. I can prove, I think, from the scripture that's what he means by this, because when the, when the king heard that God was going to smite the city through Jonah's message, the king says, turn to the whole city to a, an issue of repentance, and says, we are repenting because of the violence we have done. The king wasn't guessing why they were getting smoked. He says, we're repenting because of the violence we committed. The king exactly knew what they had done wrong. But then God turns around and says, should I not have mercy on those who can't tell their left from their right? They can't reason. They don't know what the destruction's all about. Here, key in there is also the animals. Animals, they don't reason. Deuteronomy 138-39, Moses is... is done uh, his leadership of Israel, Joshua has taken over. They're about to enter the promised land. Joshua, the son of Nun, who stands before you, God says, he shall enter the promised land. Encourage him, for he will cause Israel to inherit it. Moreover, your little ones and your sons who this day have no knowledge of good or evil shall enter, and I will give it to them and they shall possess it. Interestingly enough, the little ones would be children, and your sons, they were 20 and under. God deemed in that situation specifically that those that were 20 and under could not reason. They didn't know their right good from evil. I'm not here to debate that in terms of age of accountability today, but I am just showing you through the text that God made this declaration that 20 and under could enter the promised land because he deemed them as having no knowledge of good or evil. To everyone else above, he says, you're done. You're, you're dying in the wilderness for your rebellion against me. 
Why is this important? There's a lot of conversations surrounding suicide in terms of mental stability, chemical imbalance, illness, and so on. I'm not an expert in this area. I'm not claiming to be. All I'm saying is this, is that the Lord takes into consideration all of these things when he goes to judge someone who commits suicide. He knows perfectly well what they should be accountable for, what they can't be accountable for, and what to hold them to his standard in. If a person is a Christian and his life is sold out for the Lord, and then he suffers, or he or she suffers a brain injury through a car accident, and then becomes rebellious in terms of their character on a persistent level, I believe God looks at that with like all fairness. If a person has been, again, sold out for the Lord and living for them, and they get a disease that affects their mental capacity, and they start to become a violent, angry person, which is against God's design. I believe he takes these things into consideration. That's where you and I, are. it's really difficult for us to make judgment calls on these things because we don't know the ins and outs of what people are truly going through and how to process all that. But God says, I know every number of hairs on that person's head. If he knows that, he knows every decision and emotional things that they're going through that makes them lead to the decisions that they're making as well. Scripture points over and over to the fact that God is absolutely fair in his judgment. So I believe the answer needs to be approached from two perspectives, the Christian and non-Christian. What does God do with the non-Christian? I think if we ask that question, it really comes down to this. What, does the, what has the non-Christian done with Jesus Christ to their life? Acts 4.12 says there is salvation in no other name than Jesus under heaven. There's salvation in no other name under heaven than Jesus. I think what we do is make the mistake of highlighting suicide as the means of determining someone's eternal destiny. But really what the Bible tells us is that it has to do with how they've responded to Christ in this lifetime through their entire lifetime. You know the examples I gave in the four examples of those men? Did you know that when you read their description of their character, Scripture makes it clear that those four men lived in total rebellion against God their, their whole lives. Suicide was just the final expression of their rebellion, but it wasn't the, the determining factor of their eternal destiny. They were defined as just rejecting God and His ways throughout their entire life. So therefore, if someone... Uh, who's a non-Christian, commits suicide. It's not the means by which we only determine the destiny. We have to say, what did they do with Jesus throughout their entire life? That's why if an unbeliever in their dying moments, let's say they've um, taken a bunch of pills and they come to consciousness in the last, like just for a brief second or five seconds or 10 seconds and they say, God, I did wrong, forgive me, and they die. I know for an absolute fact, from scriptural evidence, they will be going to glory. If, they, if, they, if, if God could be merciful and rescue them, but if they repent in the dying moments, they can go to glory. The thief on the cross is primary for that. Luke 23, 43. He's nailed to the cross and he says, remember me, Lord, in your kingdom. And he says, today you'll be with me in paradise. How about a Christian? Huge, huge theological question. Remember my intro, your theology dictates this answer. 
Many believers will say a resounding yes, absolutely they're going to glory, and their biblical logic would go something like this. In Mark 3, 28, Jesus made this declaration. Truly I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven the sons of men. Just put the word people in there. All sins shall be forgiven people, and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit has never, will have, never have forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. So the logic would go something like this. All sins have been forgiven men. The only sin that can't be forgiven is the blaspheming of the Holy Spirit. But a Christian hasn't done that. A Christian has received Jesus Christ as their Savior, and so therefore all sins are forgiven. So if they die as a Christian, they are forgiven as a Christian, and it's on the merits of Jesus. For many of you in here, you may hold to this theology, and so the issue is wrapped up in a box, neat and tidy, and it's done with. For me, it's not that simple. For me, it's not that simple. While I agree that salvation begins with Christ's offer of forgiveness, how we live in response matters greatly to God, and the choices we make can have an impact on our eternal destiny. I'll remind you of Revelation chapter 2 that we studied this year. Remember what he said to Ephesus, But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Therefore remember from where you have fallen and repent. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So, what is John saying? He's saying this, you have lost your first love. It's so serious, church, that if you do not overcome this, you will not inherit the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So if you repent of your, losing your first love, you will overcome and get the tree of life, which is a picture of the Garden of Eden restored. But what happens if you don't overcome? Logically, it tells you the opposite has to be true. You don't inherit the tree of life. It's the only way to read the text in absolute fairness. So while I agree that salvation begins with Christ's offer of forgiveness, how we live doesn't matter. And if I followed Mark 3's logic, if we base it on Mark's three logic, Ephesus had nothing to worry about then, did they? Ephesus had nothing to worry about. If, if all sins have been forgiven since they're Christians, then what's the warning about in Revelation 2? There's no warning. They could just claim Mark 3, John, Mark 3, but they don't. They know exactly what's going on here. So, what about a Christian then? Let me give you a, like a synopsis then. While I do believe God can forgive a Christian, and I, I do believe that he can, I wouldn't want to play Russian roulette with God and presume on his grace. Although I believe he can, I would not want to play Russian roulette with God and presume on his grace. But I want to share a story with you believing that God can. This comes from a book that uh, John and Charlene gave me when they left um, Okotoks uh, back in J July, and uh, written by a professor named Jack Beer of Dallas Theological Seminary. This is Jack Deere giving his personal testimony of losing his father to suicide, okay? So, and oh, they had a, pro a guy who had a healing ministry and a prophetic ministry come to their church to teach them. His name was Paul Kane. So this is 
Jack Deere writing about Paul Kane and his experience. Several years ago, Paul Kane and I were in a conference hosted by Metro Vineyard Christian Church Fellowship in Kansas City. Paul had given a message and afterwards had given prophetic words to six individuals in the audience. Then he looked directly at me and said, Jack, would you stand up, please? As I rose to my feet, Paul said, I had a vision of your mother this afternoon. Her name is Wanda Jean. I saw her standing on a cliff looking for her missing jewel. That must mean your father's name is Jewel Clifford. Then I saw your father. When I saw him, he was in heaven, face to face with the Lord Jesus. The Lord showed me that sometime before your father had died, like Abraham, he believed in the Lord, and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. I was absolutely stunned. No one knew my mother's real name. She hated the name Wanda. She would only use the name Jean. It was one of our best kept family secrets. Likewise, my dad never went by the name Jewel Clifford. Everyone called him Jack. I had never told Paul that my parents' names were Jean and Jack, let alone that their birth names were Wanda Jean and Jewel Clifford. I knew that the only way he could have gotten these names was by a supernatural revelation from the Lord. Anyone could have told me that they had seen my father in heaven, but the only the Lord could have told me the real names of my parents in such a way that it would confirm the supernatural revelation about my father's presence in heaven. My father committed suicide when I was 12 years old. Five years later, I became a Christian. After that time, I used to wonder about my father, whether he was in heaven or hell. Over and over, I would try to evaluate all the evidence. It went back and forth like this for several years until finally I got it out of my mind, or I put it out of my mind. Now, not too long after I had turned 40, the very age at which my dad took his life, the Lord in his mercy revealed to me that my father was in heaven. So what hope is there for those who are contemplating ending their life? The first thing I think we need to point out is that people contemplate suicide in the first place because they actually believe the lie. I'll say that again. They believe the lie that they are better off dead than alive. You contemplate suicide when you believe that you're better off dead than alive, and those around you are better with you dead than alive. It comes from an utter sense of despair. It comes from an utter place of hopelessness that nothing's going to change. And you have no seeming answers to the issues that you're facing. And so some of the issues that can lead to this are health issues. You're physically so sick and you're physically so hurting that you just see no point to life. Financially, you're in ruin. You see no upswing, you see no hope in the area of money, and maybe you're in massive amounts of debt and so on, and you can't see yourself ever getting out, and you think, I can, this is insurmountable, I can't provide, and so on and so forth. Loneliness can be an issue. Feeling undervalued, unappreciated, like you're imaginary, like no one loves you, no one cares for you. And so you think, well, I'm alone anyway, so what difference does it make if I'm gone? Marriage. Marriage is a hard one, right? Because when things are good, things are great. But when things are tough, oh my goodness, like it's, you just sometimes want to just never get out of bed. And so marriage, if, it's, if there's no hope and all you see is divorce signs or, or maybe even uh, 
you're not going to get divorced, but you, but you just see no hope in anything ever changing, it can create tremendous amounts of pain, and you think, what's the point? Another big one is guilt. Guilt for past sins, guilt for choices you've made, and you think, There's, I just can never be forgiven for any of these things. And these are just like uh, five, five of probably a hundred things I could write down. But these are some of the things. And so this is where the gospel of Jesus Christ and the person of Jesus Christ can be so powerful. So powerful. Let's look at the issue of health. The, the truth of Christ can help. You know, in, the, in, in Romans it says that the body groans for the longing of its redemption. So Paul says this, the reality is as a Christian, or as a person, I should say, as a person, um, you are just physically going to decay. <laughs> There's nobody 90 years old in the Olympic Games. There's nobody in the Olympic Games 60 years old. You're basically like 35 and under. And that's it. Nobody in here can do more push-ups now than they could when they were 18. The reality is that we're going to die and the body's going to decay. But then Paul says, thanks be to God because we long for the redeeming, the redeeming of our body. Christ says this, this is just a blip on the earth compared to what eternity holds. In eternity, I'm going to give you a new health, new resurrected body, and you're going to be free from the suffering. You're only going through a season, the message of the gospel says, and God even can use the suffering for his glory and redeem it. And at times, he'll even heal you. There are times when he even steps in into history and will heal you. How about money? Matthew 6 says, if you seek my kingdom, seek my kingdom and, and my righteousness, all else will be added to you and you do not have to be anxious for anything. I will give you the basic necessities of life. You seek my kingdom, and I will take care of you. He even helps change your attitude, because in 1 Timothy chapter 6, he says, don't fix your hope on riches and wealth, which is fleeting, but fix your hope on God. God's like saying this to people who want to commit suicide over financial matters. Let me help you change your focus. Focus on me, and we'll redeem this situation. I'll produce a contentment in you, that was never there before. How about loneliness? Jesus Christ places his Holy Spirit in you at the moment that you receive him. Every day the Holy Spirit will guide you through your life and be present with you. You're not alone. He also provides the church community so that you have a new family, so that you're not alone. Genesis House on a good day can have 70 people here. If you're alone, he's saying, I've got 70 people that can step alongside you and be part of your life. And God also changes us in our character to make us better at relationships because sometimes our loneliness is a result of our own dysfunction. And we've pushed people away and God says, I can actually change you so that you can be in relationship with other people in a much healthier way. How about guilt? Again, guilt is the constant sense of regret due to decisions. You know, I failed so much, what's the point? Jesus says, uh, I can set you free of all that. I went to the cross 
and died so that you can be forgiven. I can have you receive my forgiveness to free you from guilt, because I took it. And I can also help you forgive others so that you're less bitter and we can be restored. I attended a Billy Graham evangelistic summit this week on Thursday, and um, I heard six sermons in one day. <laughs> Most of them I've ever heard in one, one sitting. And um, one of the speakers stood up and said something I just couldn't, I just, it just shocked me. He said, you know, uh, I have a friend of mine who's a counselor, a psychologist, and uh, he's a Christian psychologist, but in the psychological world, it's hard to offer the gospel because of the, all the laws around like Christianity and stuff like that. But he said, he said, in my assessment of all the patients that I see, he goes, at least half, if not more than half, would get out of their suicidal thoughts and their depression and anxiety if they knew that they could be forgiven. A psychological assessment from a psychologist says, I believe my clients, half my clients could be set free if they believed they could be forgiven. But the government, with all its laws, won't allow the, the, the psychologist who's a Christian to proclaim that forgiveness comes through Jesus Christ or he'll lose his job. Forgiveness is critical to being set free and being removed from guilt. Jesus has a solution. In marriage, well, scripture is full of health and marital issues. Christ has a plan for a man and a woman. And by God's grace, he's given us at Genesis those tools to help disciple people in those areas. And here's what's important. We've already studied from Revelation 4 that God is seen as the creator, right? The worship scene was God being worshipped in heaven for being the creator. Did you know, or well, actually you do know, will you rem remember what the other portion of the worship scene was about? He was being worshipped for two things. God as creator, Revelation 4, and God as redeemer, Revelation 5. What does it mean to be a redeemer? A redeemer. If you're a redeemer, you purchase something, you buy back. You buy back. And so in Revelation chapter 5, there's this worship scene where they're just praising God like crazy for the fact that he purchased people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. He's bought back. So he's one who can restore. He can provide hope and healing to, desperate, to the desperation that people face. I'm going to finish with this one verse. Oh, I should have just read it there. Yeah. Oh, let, me, let me read it. Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased with God, for God with your blood, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. He can buy back with his blood health, the uh, financial situations, the loneliness, the guilt, and the marital issues, all things that lead to desperation. Here's the final verse, John 10, 10. Jesus says, the thief, the devil, comes to only to, to steal and to kill and destroy. But I came that you may have life and have it abundantly. He's not just talking about the future. He's talking about now. Jesus came so that you may have eternal life, but that you may have life abundantly here and now. So, what can we learn from this? 
again, it's really difficult for me to be dogmatic or strong and like you know the, the, the certainty of the lessons because like I said there's no scriptural evidence for uh, what God says about the issue so I'm left in my own theology to try to represent God the best that I think is, is captures his heart so again like uh, these are these are just things I've written down knowing that there's there, you know this is sort of my best guess But lesson one is, I wrote this way, I believe the biblical evidence would support that suicide is a sin. The Bible declares that murder is a sin and suicide is a self-murder. God as a creator of life then um, is, is a major attribute of God and so the act is a rejection of God's provision when you take your own life. However, what really people care about is it forgivable. That's what people care about. That's the one that everyone cares about. For the Christian, I believe the answer can be yes. However, I would not want to presume on God's grace in every instance. I think that's playing Russian roulette with God when you just think, well, I'm a Christian, I'm just going to take my life because I know I'm going to glory. That plays a dangerous game for me for one big reason. That means anytime I feel that I'm in any sort of depression or hurting in any kind of way, I can just decide when I should leave this world. And some of us have massive thresholds for tolerance for going through stuff, and some of us have very minimal tolerance for going through stuff. You know that, like the half antique, the, the half glass, uh, like the people who live their lives with the glass half full versus half empty, right? They have different personalities in how they can handle conflict and how much they can persevere. And I just wouldn't want to play that game with the Lord when I determine that I can go. However, I read you that story from Jack Deere intentionally because there's an example of a man who will be in glory who took his own life. For the non-Christian, the answer would be no, but due to a lifelong rejection of Jesus and not just because of the one-time act of suicide. Right? It's what we do with the Lord in this life. It's, not, it's about Him. We don't define the Christian life by, by one simple act here and there. It's just the, the, the people who committed suicide in the Bible rebelled against God in all areas of their life, and suicide was a final expression of their, of their frustration and anger and rebellion. The exception, of course, would be that if someone was to repent in their dying moments, the Lord didn't revive them or, or heal them. And um, the thief on the cross is a great example of where he would, in his mercy, uh, extend forgiveness. Lesson three, as Christians, we can take great comfort in knowing that God is merciful and takes one's reasoning capacity into play when determining their eternal destiny. This is really important. And this is, what, this is the crux of my sermon for me. He, I mean, God is merciful and he takes the reasoning capacity into play. So really... For every single person's life, Christian, non-Christian, whatever, like God knows what he's doing, he's a perfect judge. No one will, um, no one will be in heaven that, that God didn't deem, deem to be there. Right? Everyone that's going to be in heaven, God knows they should be there. And when he makes a new heavens and new earth, he knows perfectly well who wanted to know him and walk in his ways and who didn't. There'll be no mistakes. God's a perfect judge in all these things. 
And finally, for anyone who's experiencing a great sense of despair at this time, because I'm not uh, naive enough to think that people in this church may not be going through issues right now. There is hope to be found in Jesus Christ. But you have to trust Him. You have to trust Him with your marriage. You have to trust Him in your health. You have to trust Him in your loneliness. You have to trust Him with your finances. You have to trust Him with your guilt. And He will redeem you. Okay. Thanks for being patient, and uh, we'll end here. I want to do something different, though. I don't want to have a time of discussion right now. Uh, we, you girls can discuss this on Monday night, and uh, anyone who wants to discuss this sermon with me can discuss this with me uh, outside after church or after in the, in, the, in the pews here or through a text or a phone call or a coffee, we can discuss this. But I do know there are people in here that have suffered loss through suicide and may have, are still walking in a tremendous amount of pain and confusion and, and hurt. I'd like to take time to get into groups and uh, pray for those who have the courage to say, that's me. You could be uh, a person who's uh, lost someone, and we can pray for you now for the Lord to heal your heart and to take care of the grief. Or you might be someone who's actually considering it right now, and you have no hope, and so this is for God to fill you with his Holy Spirit and bring renewal to you. So whatever, I don't know what situation you're all in, but I do believe this could be a time that God can redeem and can bring healing to you.